This is for all the girls who grew up without strong geek role models to help them discover their geek dreams. For everyone who's ever been quizzed about their video game knowledge because girls don't play games. Geek Hearing is working to bring female identifying geeks into the prime to be the role models, dreams, and voices. About to show these boys how we do it. Higher, further, faster, baby. It's not about deserve. I'm not an owl! A girl has no name. There is something supernatural at work here. It's about what you believe. Did I stop on your mom? The Guardian Leviosa. now on, you do as I do. May the odds be ever in your favor. Are you ready for this? Are you ready for this? Welcome to Geek Hearing, a critical geek culture podcast where we talk the good and the bad parts of being a chick in a male-dominated environment. Hi, my name is Monica, and with me today is my lovely, amazing, glorious, head-banded, and in the hot UK sitting co-host, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Isn't it hot hey, over there? Monica, it was very hot until like about three hours ago because we're oh. getting a big thunderstorm coming in. Oh, I just heard that it's so hot in the UK. I thought you might be super hot as well. Yeah, I had like a nice outdoor barbecue yesterday. Nice. Um, but today, today the weather's just turned right as we went out for a walk earlier. It was like, oh, and it's cold again. Oh, no. I'm sorry for that. I know. How are you? I'm good. I'm a bit in pain, but that's self-inflicted and it's my own fault. <laughs> but it's other true. than that, it's all, all fine. But more than anything, I'm really excited. Absolutely. Me too. But why are you excited? I'm excited because we have a guest on today. We do have a guest on. We have a super awesome, amazing guest on. We do. Let us know who it is. Well, I'm really excited because we have the one and only Professor Talit from the Half Hill Report joining us for a really cool conversation. Hello, Talit. Hello, hello. hello How's hello. it going? Uh, just fine. I'm excited to be here as well. Hey. I haven't talked about some of this stuff for a long time, so I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, we are very amazing. honored that we are the ones who want to talk about all of this after such a long time that you mentioned. I've been listening to your podcast, and you are the perfect people to listen Aww. to talk to you about it. That is That's really nice. <laughs> All the warm fuzzy. <laughs> Super excited. My goodness. So, Professor Talib, for those of our audience who don't know who you are, give us a quick rundown. Who are you? Well... I live in the Pacific Northwest of the United States uh, with a miniature poodle named Jazz, and you might hear her. Uh, I doubt it, but it's possible if you hear a dog barking, that's what it is. I am a sociologist. I'm a retired college professor, nice. and um, I spend my time these days since I'm retired playing video games and doing a little gardening, a little quilting, and doing the podcast with Tash Mifuni. Nice. I, I also spend a lot of time with Tash Mifuni in the evenings playing Warcraft and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> Are you two living, you two live in the same area? No, no, no okay. we live several states apart, actually. Ooh. We, we met in a virtual world. That's those are most of the time the best kinds of people, True. <laughs> but I might be biased. Yeah. <laughs> and I just got all excited because you said miniature poodle. I also have a poodle, he's not miniature, but he's like standard. So, oh, do you? Oh, yeah, I do. Wow, wow. So the, the poodle people, I'm always like, Yay, poodle! Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's really, really makes a bond right away, doesn't it? <laughs> it does because yeah. I do think it's a, quite the underestimated race like people they mm -hmm. all want to doodle now because they think it's way cooler but we know the truth we, we know, know the that truth. the real dog the best dogs are the poodles yeah no <laughs> people think poodles are sissies you know but what a standard poodle is a lot of dog <laughs> oh no he's the the mid-sized one. Oh, the mid-sized one so yeah. not the bit yeah but that the, the standard one is huge i i don't yeah. know how you categorize them but we have oh. like a, a nine kilo dog, so I don't know what that is in pounds, Amanda, means to convert that. <laughs> Nearly 20, 22, maybe? Something 22 like pounds, that. Something like that. My only experience with a poodle, my one of my best friends in high school, um, actually one of my longest school friends, uh, had a black poodle called Joy. Um, and she was she was old and she was kind of smelly, and we called her a poodle. Oh, that is <laughs> mean. <laughs> 
Well, what a great name for a poodle. I knew a white poodle, one, a white standard poodle who used to bounce around all the time, and his name was Circus. Oh, oh nice. Great name. It's a good name. Yeah, but Joy good. also would name. Yeah. <laughs> for kind of kind of prim, prim, premonition that it would be a jumpy dog when they called him Circus before, I found that pretty cool. <laughs> oh. But you're not here today to talk about dogs with us. <laughs> Even no, though I could totally feel an hour with you there. I'm on board with this conversation. Like, maybe we can have two episodes. Like, <laughs> Why are poodles the best dogs in the world? <laughs> Chapter number one. I did dog training as a vocation for about 40 years. So mm. I can talk about dogs for a very long time, too, if you would like to ever talk Amazing. about dogs and dog training. You're the absolute best person. You just turned yeah. into my favorite person of all times. <laughs> that is actually my fifth miniature poodle. Oh, wow. But I, but I trained a lot of other breeds as well. Aren't they just the best, though? They are the absolute best. They're the yeah. best. They're so tuned in to people. Oh, yeah. Very much so. He's just sleeping there, so he can't even. But, yeah. Yoshi is so talented. Monica's got him trained to do all sorts of tricks. Yeah. Nice. We, we did go to training as well because I know it's important and he enjoyed it a lot. So that's why we did a lot of that. And he found people because we, with the nose and all, I don't know how you called it. Did track? No, that's not the right tracking, word. Tracking or scent work. Yeah, scent work. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. It was pretty good at it. Oh, and was, awesome. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah, we might have to do another one of these because it's tempting to go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Amanda already asked you who you are, and we will start with a quick rapid fire round before we go into the topic that we talk about today with you, if you're okay with that. I am okay with that. Perfect. So um, our first question is, where are you from? I was born in Minnesota, and I grew up in Southern California. Ooh. Ooh, isn't that the, quite the weather change there? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Good choice. Yes, indeed. But we moved when I was six so, or seven. Okay. I think, so. <laughs> so since when are you a geek? So maybe a year or a story of your first geeky experience? Well, I come, have come late to being a geek or geekhood um, because as you will hear, you know, as we talk about my my young adulthood, growing up in my young adulthood, um, geek, being a geek sort of wasn't a thing, at least by name. It took a long time for that to develop. And so it kind of wasn't part of my world. Although um, I think that I did do geeky things. I, I was very... Um, I spent a lot of time reading The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy many times, and I think that that's probably a geeky thing. But I really learned about the geek when I uh, started hanging out with Tash Mafuni, which was about nine years ago. And of course, he's a dyed-in-the-wool classic geek uh, with many interests, and so I have come to share some of those, and um, we watch movies together. He's you know shared all of the star nice. wars movies with me and okay. that sort of thing which i had never seen before and you know and lots of other things and and then i'm i'm pretty hooked on world of warcraft so nice i and i've always read science fiction um and fantasy from the you know the very beginning so basically you were a geek before geekdom had the term i think i was i was a geek before geek was cool yeah that's the, those yeah. are the best kinds definitely <laughs> Um, like before geek was a thing yeah. yeah what are your biggest influences uh maybe books or movies or tv shows teachers games or whatever could come to mind in that regard i mean obviously all of those things are influences but i think that the biggest one i would have to say is books um you know i taught myself to read when i was like five or six years old and started wow. reading um and i this makes me sound older than i actually am but <laughs> But I went, I went to a one-room schoolhouse for my first few years of schooling in Minnesota. We lived in a very small town, and they, had, we, they actually had a one-room schoolhouse. And um, there were only two, me and another boy, who were in my class. And I was very bright, and he was not so bright. So she put him back a grade and moved me up a grade. But that still left me with a great deal of time um, in the first and second grade. And I read books from her library, from the teacher's library. Oh, nice. Back then. And then, of course, um, you know, I, through 
college and becoming a sociologist and graduate school and teaching sociology for 30 years, um, books have been a big, big part of my life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that that probably has to be the biggest influence. Amazing. And what are your current geeky pastimes? Well, I've already mentioned um, hanging out with Tash Mafuni and um, playing WoW and some other, I play some other video games. I play a couple games with my sister and she lives in Arizona. And um, so that's, that's it. Doing a podcast, that counts, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, especially because it's a Warcraft podcast. That's Yes. And yes. you put a lot of work into that one, like comparably more work than, I guess, other podcasts do by the format of your podcast, I guess? I don't know. I mean, people people tend to think that, but we typically do it in one day. Uh, it takes up most of our Saturdays, um, but both of us are fast and experienced writers. And, you know, we've developed these characters that, you know, once I, once I get the germ of an idea for um, Rizak, for example, um, it just sort of writes itself. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, because I, I can hear him talking in my head. <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, and so, you know, it takes us most of a day, but I, I don't think it takes a, a whole lot longer than it takes to do a regular podcast. Nice. Yeah, I love the concept of your podcast, though, like just the fictional or the fictionalized stories and inside World of Warcraft. Yeah, it's, it's so brilliant. much fun. Yeah. And, and you know, we go particularly for the uh, Velmix and Demesis's reports. We go to a particular location where we've found a little story of some kind to build on. And we just explore that in great detail. And it's amazing the number of things you find. Um, I don't know if you listened to our last week's episode, but we had gone there um, with this whole idea in mind and then and then discovered in the the basement of the inn that there was this fight uh, club going on. Um, <laughs> it played right into our story with exactly what we needed, you know, and I had been there and I knew it was there and all, but I, you know, I hadn't made the connection with it being there and it just played perfectly. But lots of times it's just small stuff. You know, the developers have put in so many little tiny things in that game that you just don't notice unless you go examine every inch of a place. So th that's the most fun part of the whole podcast for me is, is doing that kind of exploring. In wow. uh, that sounds like an absolute delight. <laughs> it is. It does it make your is. fan fiction heart sing, I guess, because it's kind of the audible version of that. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Super excited. That was already our rapid fire round. It was quite rapid. That was pretty rapid. I'm impressed with that. I'm trying. I'm trying. Good job. <laughs> Good job. Team high five. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> so, Professor Talib. I don't think our topic today is necessarily that geeky, but what's the thing we're talking about today? Um, we are talking about a comparison between the what's called the, the second wave of feminism back in the 60s to the 80s and what feminism is like now. And I've been listening to your podcast, a lot of your podcasts, you know, in the past to sort of get an idea of, of your feminist perspectives. And um, I am so impressed with, with the direction that feminism has taken. Um, I was involved in the the second wave of feminism. So I thought I'd just like to tell you a little about that so you can do some comparisons of your own with where we started and where you're at now. I can really see, for a long time, I, I kind of felt like we had accomplished a, a whole lot or as much as I would like to, but, but you two have made me feel like we planted some seeds that are growing now. I can see, I can see the progress that we've made. And hopefully you'll be able to see some too, because I know it feels discouraging because it's still going very slowly. Yeah. <laughs> but really, but there is progress. That just gave me all the warm fuzzies, just because sometimes it seems like we're just talking. I mean, we talk to each other and sometimes it does seem like a void, I guess, sometimes. But that mm -hmm. it's just great to see from your perspective, or at least hints yeah. to a perspective, perspective that you have that we've come... So some place. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I would hope to give you a sense of of where we've come from, you know, and the fact that there has been progress made. I'd like you to see that in kind of in the way that I've been seeing it, listening to your podcast. Amazing. 
I'm really excited for this. Thank you so much for the compliment as well. Um, so take it away, Professor Talib. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, I grew up in the uh, 1950s, which was a great time to be a teenager. You know, we established teenagerhood, and that might be a whole other podcast too, but but there wasn't really teenagerhood before we got hold of it and established, um, established that. So it was a great time to be a teenager. But it was also a time when gender roles were very, very fixed in society. Men were men, and women were women, and that was kind of it. You had the two genders and um, everybody had to fit into one of those or else. Mm -hmm. And you had to fit in it in, you know, particular ways too. Um, there was a lot of just um, the cultural themes, which just kind of directed people into these roles. And for women, um, I'm going to talk about this a bit more later on, but let me just say briefly now, um, for middle-class white women, Okay, and I'll, I'll talk about that a bit more later. Um, there was this kind of track that we were on that that just suggested we were going to be um, homemakers, wives, mothers, and that's what we did, and that's what we should like. That's, you know, it was not enough that we did it. We needed to be, enjoy it and, you know, like it. I was given a doll every year for Christmas, despite mm -hmm. the fact that I rarely played with dolls. I was given a doll for Christmas every year until I was 17. When I was 18, I had a baby. I went to nine weddings the summer after I graduated from high school, wow. including my own. And we all had babies by the following year. What, what, so basically with around 19 Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I had just oh, wow. turned 19. Uh, well, see, I think I was still 18 when my daughter was born. She was born in April and I turned 19 in June. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. I expect that's different than your experience. <laughs> that's yeah. and also when I think about my nephew, he's 18 right now. Basically, we would have to father our child right about now. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah. wow. Yeah. My husband was two years older than I was, so he was he was very young yeah. too. A lot and of my mom also grew up in the 50s. Well, she was a like a young girl. She was born in 1949. Um, and I mean, she she did get married, I think, in her early 20s, um, maybe mid 20s. But she didn't have a baby until her second marriage with my dad at 36. Um, so like, that's a huge change there as well. Like, even just a few years difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did, did make a difference. So I was always a, a bright kid. I mentioned, you know, doing all of the extra reading and my parents recognized that. And so we always planned for me to go to college. Um, but it was it was a husband hunting expedition going to college. They were glad that I was smart so I could go to college so I could find a, a better educated husband who would take better care of me. I foiled their plans by Uh, falling in love with a with a guy who was a member of a car club, and I don't know if you know anything about the 90s. Have you ever watched Greek Greece? Yeah. Of course, <laughs> you know you know a little something about car clubs. Um, he had a very cool jacket and a very cool car, Ooh. and so I started going out with him. You know, and one thing led to another. We got married very young, and you know, settled down. And in those days, it was possible for young people to get really good jobs. And he got a job. Um, you know, he'd been working um, as a as a teenager doing various things. He graduated from high school. He got a job at a local factory that made. Um, small appliances like can openers and stuff like that. And he made enough money that we, we bought a house right away after a few months after we were married and, um, you know, settled down as a married couple and very soon with, with one baby and then a little later on with two. We had a very traditional relationship. As you might guess, we, we did a good job of being boyfriend and girlfriend. We did a good job of being husband and wife. We didn't do such a good job of getting to know each other mm. or being friends or being companions or really having very much in common. Yeah. <laughs> Plus, as I said, uh, you know, it was a pretty male dominated world. Uh, and it was sort of taken for granted. You know, when I got to thinking about this, I had to think, you know, this is going to really sound like abuse, but it wasn't. Mm. Um, he controlled all of the money. 
because he made all of the money. Mm-hmm. He gave me an allowance every week. I believe it was like $10 a week that I could spend on whatever I wanted to spend it on. Mostly I spent it on books. Um, <laughs> Best <awesome>. investment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he, he bought all my clothes. And whenever we went anywhere, he told me what to wear and how much makeup to wear, and what kind of makeup to wear, how to fix my hair. Um, he wanted me to look a particular way because I was sort of a symbol for him of Mm -hmm. his manhood. Um, You know, see what a great man I am. This is my woman. This is the woman I have. And I, you know, sort of spent my days cleaning house and cooking and taking care of the kids. And it was not very happy, but I didn't really know I wasn't very happy. Yeah. Um, But, you know, that was sort of the life that we lived. And so I thought maybe you could kind of compare that with your life. (laughs) And, you know, just even there, you see, I call that progress. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. You know, know, I did, I did uh, at one point get a, a job being a telephone operator. In those days, they had such things and you don't have to look up what that is. But, um, you know, it was just, I mean, he, he, would babysit for the children sometimes. Um, I had to take them to daycare. Everybody hated it. Um, everybody thought I was evil and wrong for taking my children to daycare because only women who didn't have a husband to take care of them mm. uh, should be out working and leaving their children with someone else. Uh, my parents were angry at me, my, you know, and uh, my husband was furious about it. And he put up with it for, oh, I suppose six or seven months and then said, no, that, that's it. You, we can't do this anymore. You, you have to quit. And so I did. Because what else could I do? Mm. So, um, you know, that's just, I could go on and on and on. As I say, I get carried away with this kind of thing. But hopefully that gives you a picture of what my life was like. Mm. So the next thing that happened then was that I read Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique. And um, if, if you haven't read that, I really strongly recommend, if you want to get a picture of what the second wave feminism was all about, that's what you should go to as the source because she describes it um there's also a movie um julia roberts movie uh with the mona lisa smile oh yeah oh, I saw that movie. That. yeah uh, that's the picture of going to college to as a husband hunting expedition mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um you know that also gives you sort of a visual picture but Bet- betty for dan's book uh she wrote about the problem that has no name this thing that middle-class women were experiencing um that you know, everything about the culture told us we should be happy and fulfilled, and we were the luckiest people on earth, and we were all miserable. Mm-hmm. And we were also miserable in a way that that we couldn't even share. I, yeah. I, my best friend and I didn't even ever talk about how miserable we were until years later, because it was so forbidden to be miserable in that ideal situation that we couldn't talk about it with anybody. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she wrote the book and said, you know, look. This is there's something going on here that ought not to be going on. And she drew on some earlier feminist things and so forth. And I read that book and I went, wow, you know, this is sort of me. Okay, now here I want to step back and I want to do kind of a caution or a critique. Um, the the second wave of the feminist movement was a white, middle class, straight women movement. Mm-hmm. It was not inclusive. It was not inclusive of women of color. It was not inclusive of people with alternative sexual preferences. It was not about, you know, it was not about working class women or poor women. It was about really what were very privileged women who were not happy. Um, so everything that I say really needs to be kept in that context. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doing this. I'm trying to do this from the perspective of who I was then and not who I am now. You know, again, in terms of comparison, I think one of the triumphs of not just the women's movement, but all of those movements that they have sort of managed to get their act together and come together, (laughs) you know, as being a movement for people who are in subordinate positions or subordinate uh, seen as secondary, second-class citizens, secondary people in one way or another are all coming together. And that's a huge step 
I think, uh, and also one that you know all of you young people should be very proud of taking. We we did not we, we knew you know we knew that working class women didn't have quite the same problem that we had, and we knew that they had to work and sometimes didn't really want to. But we thought, well, well, we'll solve our problem first, and then mm-hmm. we'll and then we'll go see what we can do to help them out. You know, it was a very, very arrogant perspective. And as I look back on it, you know, I'm kind of ashamed of myself. But then I also think, you know, where we came from, I mean, this totally cloistered kind of thing. Um, we really had to discover ourselves first. When when my husband and I finally separated and I lived on my own for the first time in my life, I mean, I didn't know I didn't know what I wanted to eat. I didn't know what I liked to eat because I'd always cooked for him. Mm. I didn't know what I wanted to wear because he'd picked out my clothes. I didn't know, um, you know, what I thought about things. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to do about my sexuality. I didn't know anything. We really had to discover ourselves before we could reach out to other people, I think. So I think in the context, it was understandable, if not excusable. (laughs) But I do think it's kind of similar. I mean, it's a weird comparison to say, yeah, in in an airplane, they also ask you to put the uh, oxygen mask on first. And that's basically what you did, right? It's You were already in a position where you're under some kind of pressure and you need to get to know yourself first you need to figure your own stuff out first before you then can um, go out and save the world (laughs) yeah that's an excellent way of putting it I think you know that's exactly what we had to do Mm. Um, because we were the ones with the resources you know I mean we had the education we had the knowledge um, we had um, financial resources um, and so you know we we were the ones that could do something. Mm. Um, but as you say, we had to put our own masks on first. Yeah. That, that's an excellent way of putting it. Makes yes. me feel a bunch better. Yeah. <laughs> so our concerns were with the patriarchy, you know, overthrowing the patriarchy, um, getting into the workplace because, you know, relatively few middle-class women worked at that time, as I've just described. Our, our husbands wouldn't let us and everybody else got cross about it. Equal rights, um, you know, in terms of money and opening, uh, earning um, income. And, uh, you know, women couldn't take out loans on their own in those days. It was very difficult. If you had a husband, you couldn't do it on your own. I couldn't get um, loans to go to college um, without my husband's consent, you know, and it's all that. So that was one of our concerns, um, the, the equal rights And of course, we have yet to pass the Equal Rights Amendment here in the United States. We still have no law that says that women are equal to men. But there were a lot of other things. I mean, there was Title IX and there were the, um, you know, a lot of the laws that uh, about pay discrimination and that kind of thing that, that did get passed eventually. In terms of my own life, I wound up going to college uh, I had actually started while I was still married and wasn't because I was a feminist. Um, it was just because I had always wanted to go to college. And once I got there, I discovered I was home. I mean, that's really where I belonged. And I took a sociology course, fell in love with sociology. Everyone around me managed to convince me with some effort that I was bright enough to go to graduate school because I mean, becoming a PhD had never occurred to me <laughs> up until that point in my life. But I did very well in college, and so uh, they encouraged me. And um, I, I, at that point at the college, was very wonderful professors who were um, who really understood. Uh, that women could do things and, and, as I say, really encouraged me and helped me get accepted to a, to a very good graduate school. And um, my interest developed into social change, although always with a feminist kind of basis. And I, I essentially taught feminism in all my classes <laughs> over the 30-year period. I was teaching many of the classes. My official kind of field of interest was and still is social change. Um, but I have come to kind of narrow that down to te- technology and social change in the way in which technology changes our lives. And what really initially got me interested in that was the birth control pill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that came along in the early 60s, became available. And 
you know, that was one of the reasons why the feminist movement was able to happen at that point, because we could control our reproduction. Um, mm. You know, before that, without being able to control how many children you have, mm. you're stuck. You know, I mean, it's one thing to, um, to go to college when you have two children and quite another thing when you have five. You know. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess contraception in general wasn't something that was very... No. Discussed for sex education in school. I guess that's not something that happened back in the day so that people know what they could even do to maybe not get pregnant. Yeah, yeah. My sex education um, sort of consisted of my mother saying, you know, that men wanted certain things and it was best if you just went along with them. Yeah. Wow. You know, that was kind of it. Um, I, I figured out things differently for myself, as you can guess by the fact that I had a baby at 18. <laughs> I figured things out differently. And then um, we won't go into this a whole lot, but there was the whole sexual revolution part of the women's movement, which I participated in. Um, with some enthusiasm, so there was enough. <laughs> uh, but I think we should stick to the academic part of this. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I was saying that you know the the birth control, the effects of that were kind of what got me interested in technology, and then began looking at other kinds of technology. And we could also do a whole podcast on this because of the way in which our current technologies have contributed to the the thing that we were just talking about, all of the uh, groups being able to band together. When, when I started using social media, very primitive social medias back in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, I said to myself that one of the things I observed was that people, as we all know, can present themselves online as things they are not. You know, if you're a woman, you don't have to be a woman online. You can be a man online, um, vice versa. Um, it occurred to me that if there was a whole generation of people who grew up not knowing the gender or the color of the people that they interacted with online, that they might not care so much about gender and they might not care so much about color. Those things might become more irrelevant to those people in real life because if they were spending a lot of their time interacting with people online where it didn't matter, why should it matter in real life? And I'm happy to see that that prophecy is coming true, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think mm -hmm. there are a whole lot of people out there who, who just really don't care a whole lot about people's gender, whatever it happens to be, um, or their, their color. And we're beginning, we're just beginning to see the results of that, um, where there, you know, there are a lot of people who are out in the streets supporting the the Black Lives Matter movement and that sort of thing, just because they've learned that those things don't matter, you know. And and of course we always say that, but but even for people of your age, I think, and certainly people of my age, you know, we grew up in a time when they did matter. You know, it mattered a lot. And but it's the kids growing up now, the ones that were born around 2000, who are growing up with the cell phones in their hand who are going to be the ones who are really going to make the changes because I think, as I say, I think you know, it matters less to them. Mm. They really shake off that old, those old cultural traditions because they have no reason to keep them up. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. And it reminds me of a post that I saw um, a few months ago saying that Generation Z or Z um, um, is the most, like, the, the queerest, the most intersectional, the most uh, racially diverse generation that's coming that's that's here and they are going to change the future mm -hmm. yeah and it's the technology that the technological base of interacting in that particular way that i think is contributing a great deal to that development that we're all mm -hmm. seeing now so i find that very exciting and the fact that feminism has made common cause with a lot of those groups you know back in my day they were we spent a lot of time in graduate school debating over the primacy of whether the original oppression was gender or was race. Mm -hmm. We argued about that a lot. We argued a lot about all the different varieties of feminism that there were and are, um, you know, ranging from radical feminism to Marxist feminism, socialist feminism, liberal feminism, 
traditional feminism, <laughs> um, you know, all the different kinds. We spent hours and hours, you know, debating those kinds of things. And then the other thing that I did, the main thing, I just wanted to finish up a bit here. The main thing that I did was to run consciousness raising groups. Once I kind of got my own consciousness raised, then I spent a lot of time raising consciousness groups while I was in college and graduate school. And then even after I became a professor, although I did less of that then because I just used my classes as places to raise consciousness in a, in a you know, kind of a broader way, not just women. Um, I went to protest movements. I burned a bra. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Contributed in whatever way I could to, to the development of that. So... I've already mentioned what I think it is. Um, I think that what, what we've done is we've made a lot of progress in the areas of the the workplace, uh, equal pay. I mean, we're not there yet, but it's certainly better than it was. Mm. Um, women in the workplace, women are, you know, becoming accepted more more commonly in a whole wide variety of workplaces. Again, the situation isn't perfect, but it's better. It's improved a whole lot. Where I don't see things changing very much are women's relationships with themselves and women's relationships with men. Damn it. You know, <laughs> yeah. very personal levels remains very, very difficult. It's all very well to say, you know, the, the personal is political and to kind of distance yourself from men, which is what I did. You know, I was pretty angry at men for quite a while. I got over that now and and you know, and I was never one of those feminists who wanted to to be the dominant group. Um, I'm, I heard you describe Amanda, and when I think it's in one of your blogs, you give your definition of feminism as being everybody being equal, and you know that's my definition too. Um, but but I did go through a period where I just didn't really want to have a whole lot to do with men because mm. I was pretty angry about all of that. That's one thing, but you know, I don't think that that's a good long-term strategy for feminists to, you know, divorce themselves from men because clearly not only are the company of men is enjoyable, but um, in in a lot of cases, not always, <laughs> a lot of cases, <laughs> you know, men have to come around. I mean, men really at this point, men have to do it. You mm -hmm. know, they have to step up and do their part mm. and. And whenever you're made to do that, even as we speak. Um, yes. Yes. Um, but all of them. And, and the good men, I think, like Tash Mafuni, is really a very good man. Um, he is as liberated as I think it is possible for a man to be in, in our society. And I've known a lot of, you know, wonderful men like that. Um, but, you know, they're the ones that really have to make the change. And, and of course, the younger generation coming along, as I say, it won't matter so much to them. And then some of the change will happen organically, just as a part of the outgrowth of the way they've been thinking about things. So those are the areas where I see we've made progress in the areas where we haven't. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> sure. Because you, you say that um, you feel that women in general, like us, we made a lot of progress, but we haven't made quite the progress with ourselves and with men. Do you think that the younger generation can how can somehow accomplish it on their own to figure that part for themselves out? Or is that something that they need to see someone lead by example? And how could we then do that? I mean, that's a whole few a lot of questions mm -hmm. in one question, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, I, I see what you're, you're getting at. Um, you know, I, th I think both. Um, as, a, as a sociologist, I'm, I'm what's called a technological determinist. Um, I believe that the technology, well, well, really all of the material factors, demography, um, environment, um, but primarily technology really determines how we live our lives. You know, the technologies that are available to us determine what we do and and the way we think about the world it determines the people that we become not everybody agrees with that but that's my position i think that primarily it's going to grow organically out of the technology mm -hmm. and i think i am hopeful that it will have the consequence that i'm you know that i've already talked about but i also think that what the sort of thing that that you two are doing you know the providing of the example i also think is important despite my my technological determinism i think that that seeing 
and hearing other people talk about it. Because, you know, one of the, the problems for me as a young woman was that no one talked about any of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was simply taken for granted that women were inferior to men in a great many ways. Um, they certainly had their strengths. I mean, when it came to rearing children, bearing children and rearing children, I mean, they were the only, I mean, they were really the only ones who could do that. Men couldn't do that. So, you know, that that was wonderful. Um, so we didn't really have the images, you know, we didn't really have anything to look at um, and say, well, it's okay to do this. It's so, you know, kind of like being a geek, you know, I mean, the model, the role models out there are really important. Mm. Um, I wouldn't be much of a sociologist if I didn't acknowledge the importance <laughs> of role models. <laughs> so, yeah, mm. so I think it's both. I think that, that people speaking out um, and being visible and talking about it is very important be, to support what the what comes out of the technology organically. Mm-hmm. I like the technological approach to I do too that because it makes so much sense when you say, of course, when 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 kids and uh, people like us are online all the time, um, that it doesn't it doesn't matter who the person on the other end is. I mean whatever their yeah. gender is right. whatever their their color is whatever where they're from what all the things what their sexuality is doesn't matter because what you do in that moment is have a different conversation where all of these aspects are not relevant as much mm-hmm. and uh, see, i see so much of what you say now happening too and and that's just really cool to acknowledge that tech is not just all bad like so many like to believe Yes. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I mean, none of us would be sort of here the way we are now without the technologies that we use, because um, I I see one of the big drivers of the women's movement has been the technology. Um, When most people worked on farms, which is, you know, at the the 1900s and the early 20th century, almost everyone worked on farms. And working on farms requires um, for the most part, big muscles. You know, mm-hmm. it's not that women can't do farming, but the kind of farming they were doing, um, you know, without tractors and that kind of thing, you know, required the big muscles. And so that's why that was important. Um, and women, oh, I could tell you stories about my grandmother who caught, was on a farm, but I have to not do that too. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, then when we began to get this technology, you see, for for this kind of digital electronic technology we have, it's not your your body, it's not your muscles or anything that counts, it's your brain. And, you know, and women have at least 50% of the good brains and <laughs> possibly more than that of the good brains in society. So, um, so there was this kind of natural process that, you know, women can do this kind of work as well as men or better. Mm-hmm. And the capitalist system requires that you use the best resources available. And so that's why women have been... I hate to say this, but allowed into doing these things is because they can do it equally well. Mm. And the technology has made that possible. Brain work, you know, and the importance of brain work as it's been growing is something that women can do equally well. And so that's been a big driver, not the only driver, not the sole thing, but a big driver mm-hmm. of the economic progress that women have made. I'd never really thought of it like that before, but hearing you say, and I'm just like, this is so obvious. Like it really is the... At least a huge part of the progress of of women, and like I find technology to be such a, a a place to build community and define community, and like it's within those communities that the growth happens as well. Um, yeah, like I'm just thinking of the communities that I I'm in right now. Um, like uh, and one that we all have in common is the Dragon Powered Studio, and like I have to say. I I didn't know most most of the guys in Dragon Fire Studio before it existed. Um, some of them yes, but some of them most of them no. And I have to say, like honestly, the guys in it, at least the vocal ones, are really fantastic examples of where our men are going, where men mm-hmm. can like elevate to and and be like you say about Tosh Mifuni, like he's a fantastic example. Like I don't know him that well. I've only had a few calls um, with him, but um, like I do know Tom and Marty and Frasley and. And even Pete, like, I'm just so surprised by 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 what's coming out of these guys' mouths, especially like recently with everything going on in the Warcraft community and like all the abusers and 
And it's, it's just the way that they're stepping up and they're trying to do the, do what they can to understand what's happening and make sense of it and progress to make sure that they can be part of the solution. It just, it, it gives me so much hope. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. Me too. It's a big step in, in what I think is the right direction. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I think it's so easy to see all the bad stuff, considering if you th- if you look at all the bad news that is out there right now in all the scenes as well. Like, I mean, it's not even only the gaming scene. Is, scene is everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was the, the movie... It was in the movie scene like a few years ago. Now it's opening up the game scene, and I'm sure there are other areas as well where where this volcano eruption needs to happen as well. And then we own, and then there is always a time where you only see the the things and where 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 you see the worst of people and the worst kind of men, and you're like, mm-hmm. all men can be so shit. But then it's so good to see, it, especially in the DPS group as well where where you're like it's such a relief sometimes to see that 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 they not everyone is okay with this it seems like everyone seems to have been okay with what was going on but it's actually just not the case and it's just very uplifting despite everything mm-hmm. else going to shits <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. yes it is yeah. it's very very encouraging because there certainly is a much larger percentage of men now who are who are willing and happy to support us than there used to be. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's a big step in the right direction. I really resonated with what you said as well, Talib, about how it comes to a point that men have to do what they can in order to further the movement as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just like with, with racism, like it's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a white person problem. Um, I mean, obviously, the impact is on a on other races, but it is a white right. problem that we need to recognize ourselves, like how we can be like what we can do to be the solution um, mm-hmm. or be like a big part of the solution, because it is something that we've done. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's the same, 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 but different mm-hmm. um, to quote Monica, <laughs> one, one of her favorite phrases um, recently. Yes. When, when it comes to, to feminism and, and like men's role in it. Yes. And, you know, and I've debated for many years with myself and with other women, um, how, how big a role we need to take in helping men do that. Um you know, ideally, we would lay out our case, and they would look at it, and they would say, well, of course, you're right. Mm-hmm. We should do away with all of these things that support gender differences. That's just um, not happening. <laughs> that's not happening. <laughs> we know that's not happening. Um, you know, and we can rely on the technology to do some of it for us. But, you know, we do, I think, you know, we have to um, tell them. We ha- We have to explain to them the situation because I think there's a lot of good men out there who just simply don't realize what you know what women's lives are like you know the the difference for us walking down a a dark street or even a daylight street mm. you know, it's a whole different experience for us than it is for men mm. um, and I don't think most men realize that unless you tell them and then once you tell them then they do say I can see that Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, but if things, you know, and if things are going to change on a large scale, because men interact with other men and men respond to um, male role models and social pressures, and also just educating each other, it, that's a very delicate balance that I'm talking about here when you're teaching, and you're trying to to get across ideas without sort of hitting people over the head with them. Because if you stand up and lecture a class of college freshmen on feminism, you're not going to get very far. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I sort of started out that way because I didn't know any better. But it quickly became obvious to me that I had to find a different way. Mm -hmm. And the way I found for my teaching was um, I tried to set up situations where people would discover things for themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that varied in a lot of different situations, but I would have like like a maze I put them through. And at every corner there they came in the maze, they would go, oh, well, yeah, that sort of makes sense. You know, and they wander a little bit more in the maze. And they come to and they're like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. You know, and by the end of the term, I could get them to write a paper 
that said exactly what I wanted them to say. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so good. You know, and I have no way of knowing how much of that they believed. And frankly, I don't care. Mm. Because I wasn't so much out to, I mean, I would like to have changed people's minds. But my goal really was to make them see it from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And if they could write down what it was I was trying to get them to see, I could be pretty well assured that they had seen it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if they didn't understand it or they didn't agree with it or they didn't like it. And I told them, that's fine. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree. You just have to show me that you understand it. I think it's a bit of what you said previously that you with the second wave feminism, you planted a seed and now you see how it's growing. I think sometimes in mm -hmm. teaching and in education, that's just what you're doing. You're planting seeds and then people go through times in their life where I mean a 17, 18 year old girl or boy, both of them, there, there is so much still happening. And then maybe two or three years later, or maybe just six months later, suddenly something is going on in their lives and they will think back to what they learned in your class or learn somewhere else. And then, then things will make more sense all of a sudden. And That's just basically the seed that you planted back then, then slowly starts to grow. And maybe it grows into a beautiful flower and maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just stays a small seedling, but there is something there. Yep. That's what I like to believe. I threw out a lot of seeds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I know a few of them grew because I kept in touch with a few. Yeah. Of them. I know a few grew, but I like to think that others did too. And I just don't know about it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure they did. Yeah. Yeah. And and not just as a teacher, but I mean, the whole uh, feminist thing, you know, I mean, that, that all of us who were doing that, um, we changed our own lives. But I think, you know, we changed the conversations in society, we changed the, mm. the framework, we made it possible to discuss things like equal pay for equal work, mm. and, and women should have the right to participate in athletics. And, um, you know, people shouldn't be discriminated on the basis of sex or gender, um, you know, we, we made those conversations possible and they led somewhere. Oh, yeah, I do think we wouldn't be where we are today if you didn't do the first, the hard job first. I mean, it's not that it's an yeah. easy job now, but it's a different <laughs> job. It's like putting, building a cart and then you start to at least build the foundation of the cart and make it thrive. And then the next part, next people or the next generation has others other work to do on the same cart so it's maybe going mm -hmm. faster or it it's maybe more stable or stuff like that so yeah that's that's an excellent way to think about it i think we need to now maybe more than ever because it seems like something so with all all that's going on there seems to be only one answer to something so it's either that or it's the other the other side and I think we need to get to a point where we are able to see that there are more sides to the coin than just one and even more opinions than maybe just two and how we can encourage discuss the discussion even if we have different opinions but it's just so easy to stay in the in our own bubble and to be like everybody I know is so woke and knows everything and and the world is such a good place and then you suddenly see how many people don't have, share your values or don't share your opinion but that doesn't automatically make them evil or something or or i don't know so I, i think we need to get to a point again i don't know if we've ever been there but we need to get to a point again where we can discuss things instead of hating on each other for having a different viewpoint on things Yeah, and that's what you you folks are so good at. You know, we were finding ourselves. You're finding each other. Oh, I love that analogy. I love that. Yeah. I still don't yeah. feel I found myself, but I like the finding each other a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that reaching out through the social media, we've discovered a lot of stuff, as you say, that we didn't know, mm. uh, you know, in our own enclosed bubble. But we, we now, you know... We can see all the other kind of points of view and we can reach out to each other. Also, I mean, you didn't have the, as you didn't have the opportunity to it, it, no access to what we have access to now. Like you said, technology made it all possible that we even can see other 
Because otherwise, where would you have been in your own town? I'm living on the countryside here, so people still... Pff, there are 3,000 people, two and a half in my, my town, and there are people here, most of them, who have never been out. Even my parents-in-law, they've never been anywhere. So that's their viewpoint on life, right? And back, mm -hmm. in, those, back in the 50s or in the 60s, people weren't there was not the access to information like we have now there was not the access to travel like we have now so it's just that that was the world you were living in and from that that's the the point that you can start to discuss things and do things and i think it's just also mm -hmm. something that we have to acknowledge as well that the more access to information we have the more we can educate ourselves on stuff and of course the discussion then also changes but if you wouldn't have done the work previously then we wouldn't have any of that yeah you're right yeah, yeah it's having all the, the the diverse sources of information and being able to know more than your own narrow circle because even i mean for us even the culture all all of the uh culture that we had access to like television uh you know reinforced mm -hmm. all of those kinds of of uh, cultural values that were all that we'd grown up with and all we knew about and everything that we saw reinforced in the mm -hmm. movies reinforced it the television reinforced it um not all the books reinforced it so that was kind of the crack <laughs> but it's like like you like you said like now it's maybe you see all the magazines and all the ads where everybody's super skinny and and they're like 20 look like 20 even though they're i don't know 60 or something and and then you that's also perspective that you get on life and back then it was all you saw in tv that everybody is happily married and they have so many children yeah. and there is no problem at all so that's what you think everybody does and and how life is for everyone so it's just always yeah. really important to see everything in in tv in movies in games in all the things that you consume it's necessary to have visibility of everything i think that is a mm -hmm. whole different topic but i think it kind of plays into <laughs> the into the same it plays the same drum somehow it absolutely does mm -hmm. yeah yeah um th that was one of the things i was thinking of in my head when i said that you know i think young women's relationship with themselves has not changed as much i mean we it appears to me that young women still have the obsession with what their bodies look like. Uh, you had that podcast a couple of weeks ago with that wonderful woman who was doing the body positive work. Mm -hmm. I just enjoyed that so much. I loved hearing from her, um, you know, and, and having people out there like that, presenting that message mm -hmm. and being a role model for that. Um, that's the sort of thing we need too, you mm -hmm. know, is that that's kind of the next step, I think, for for young women to somehow break out of that mold is perceiving themselves as having to look a certain way to be beautiful or to be valued. Um, you know, there's still so much of that. It's I think I think people like like Nancy from Plus Size Nerd who we had on and celebrities like Jamila Jamil and Lizzo are are doing incredible things for uh, body positivity and like just representation of different sized bodies and acceptance and mm -hmm. um so i think that i hope that i have i have very high hopes that we're we're moving into a place where it's not going to be about what size your your genes are and more like what's in your heart and what's in your head yeah yes yeah. so we basically need to keep up the stamina even though it seems like we're running out of fuel. We just got to keep going. <laughs> because you, have from... the, you have to keep planting your seeds. Uh, yeah, yes. true. Your seeds will take seeds. root. Yes. I like that. It's like handling, handing over the torch to the next generation. Absolutely. That's it exactly. There you go, guys. <laughs> yes. But that makes it so much such um, the pre like the pressure is not that high like this. It's just as important, but it's not like... Our, yeah. It's our responsibility to make it happen now. It's more like planting the seed and passing it on. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Patience will, will stand you. We'd all like to see it happen right now, but, yeah. you know, it's not going to. But but we really, really have to use a hackneyed phrase, come a long way. <laughs> we really have. Yeah. So from your yeah. perspective, is it then basically that you're, I mean, it could always be more, but you're at least not losing your hope about considering the progress we've made until now? No, with with just one caution about that. Um, I am 
I am absolutely optimistic about the progress we are making despite this dark time we're in right now. I think that all of this will lead to better things in the future. With one caution that I have to add in, and I'm sorry to put it downer thing on it but there's the whole environmental thing going on you know Mm, yeah and that could throw a wrench into everything about any kind of progress that we've made not just as women or people of color or anything but as human beings Mm. it could really set us back quite a bit yeah so you know as a technological determinist i have to be looking at the environment too and there's only so much we can do with technology about that Mm -hmm. and the rest of that has to come from somewhere else and that kind of gets more and more worrisome Mm. so sorry about that but no i we're not here to just have fun and games all the time (laughs) (laughs) if if that were out of the picture if we were taking care of the planet the way we should be taking care of the planet, then I would be absolutely 100% optimistic mm-hmm. about the future. Mm-hmm. It might be another 50 years. It might be another 100 years. But I see, you know, but actually I see progress speeding up a bit faster than that. I, I think it will, you know, happen exponentially mm-hmm. if you take the environmental stuff out of the picture, yeah. I think. Is, is my, I'm in, I've been so encouraged by, as I say, listening to your podcast and seeing the other young women around in this community um, who are doing things. It, it just really has warmed my heart to, to see that. I, for, it's changed my mind from the way I felt for many years that, well, we did that, but so what? Now I see what the what is, and I'm really happy with it. Nice. That's great. Um, Professor Talib, what advice would you give to the next generation of feminists coming up? The ones that are going to come after me and Monica? Keep doing it. Keep, you know, in your in your own way, whatever you can do, whatever small thing you can do, keep doing it. Uh, have faith. Have patience. Um, don't, don't give up. Um, take advantage of whatever opportunities you have to become the person you want to be yourself and to give other people opportunities. Um, You know, sometimes in the past, there have been situations where women have not helped each other, you know, have stood in each other's way. Don't compete with each other, you know, um, help each other because it will benefit all of us. I I think that would be it. That's, that's phenomenal advice. Thank you. And men too. Help the men, too, in your life. I mean, encourage them. Um, I try to, you know, support every small sign I see in any man, any time. You know, I try to, having been a dog trainer, (laughs) I try to reward positive behavior. (laughs) I try to reward it. Big reward, you know, in a bigger sort of way. You know, reward all positive behavior um, and and help them. But remind them, too, that... Perfect. They need to work with other men, yeah. I should I should have used that positive reinforcement more on my boyfriend, I guess. <laughs> it's not too late. I did it good on the I did good did a good job on the dog, but with him I was too lax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, positive works better than negative. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. They both work, but one works better than others and has a better result. Yeah. If you do any, any training, use it. Pashma <laughs> Phoney, you don't listen to this part. <laughs> oh, man. On that hilarious note, Professor Julie, where can our listeners find you online to get more of your insights? Can I tell you one other thing really quick? Of course, yes. Of course. Uh, speaking of Tash Mafuni, um, we were talking this morning and he, um, uh, you know, about my doing the podcast and he said, are you nervous? And I said, no, no, I'm really kind of excited about doing it. Um, you know, just a little nervous. And he said, well, he said, just, just know that I'll be right there holding your hand every oh, moment. Isn't he the cutest? And then, yeah, but then he stopped himself right away. Immediately he caught it and he said, Oh, that really isn't appropriate in this situation, is it? <laughs> I think it's always appropriate between friends. <laughs> yeah. I mean that's what I told him. I, I appreciated the thought and I certainly would be thinking of him. But I um I do but, think it's know, a great I, thing that he caught himself with that. 
Yes, that yeah. was the thing. It was immediate. He said. He said even before the words were completely out of his mouth, he knew it. You know. And by the way, he gave me permission to tell this story, um, or I wouldn't have done it. Um, but you know, that's what's so wonderful about him is that he knew right away. Mm. You know, he knew the difference. Yeah. Um, and he was able to say, you know, to to catch that 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 supporting people is wonderful and you know, being there for your friend is wonderful and all of that. But for a woman going to talk about feminism, <laughs> offering a man offering to stand by and hold her hand. Oh, that's you know. that, that didn't even, I didn't even put, I didn't even put these two together. Oh, I'm like, oh, I, thought, I was like, oh, friend, this is so nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, a man wants to be like, let me hold your hand while you talk about Let me help you. <sighs> let me help you do this. <laughs> But that's even more elaborate, like more, so much more advanced in his head already than, than, mm -hmm. wow. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. See, he's really quite wonderful. And I was very impressed with that. I also appreciated his support, but I also appreciated that he knew I didn't need it. Nice. That I could do it on my own because nice. that's what I learned. Yeah. I could do it on my own. Mm. Mm -hmm. I didn't need, you know. I mean, that was my my journey that I learned I didn't need a man yeah. to take care of me. I could take care of myself. Yeah, for sure. So, all right. Uh, Pita Leap, it's on um, Twitter is the best way. Um, it's Pita Leap because Professor was too long. <laughs> <laughs> so it stands for Professor Talib. Also through the Half Hill Report at Half Hill Report. Fantastic. I'm going to put Twitter. all of that That's in the that. show notes. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much for the amazing, amazing, amazing insight. I'm so excited. Yes. It's it's really Thank been you. fun to do this. I really enjoyed it a great deal. And and I hope that a lot of people listen to this and we've given them something to think about between the three of us. That is true. I'm sure That's they true. will have, have the stuff to think about. I'm sure too. Yeah. No, this has been brilliant, Tleep. And uh, thank you again for the show. Thank you for inviting me. And we'll see you listeners, or we'll hear you listeners next week for another really awesome episode of Key Caring. <laughs> Bye. 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 If you like this episode of Key Caring, why not leave us an iTunes review? You can also find us on social at Key Caring and over on keycaring.com. This show is brought to you by Dragon Powered Studio. Find more at dragonpoweredstudio.com.